Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast of history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. You can find this and other episodes like it on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify. And you can help support the podcast through Patreon. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change. A time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Obvious Conversational Corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. This episode's topic, Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? novel. The Gilded Age witnessed the explosion of popular culture of all kinds, cheaper printing, mail delivery railroads reaching the entire country, and a growing consumer public with money in its pocket and greater reading skills, meaning plenty of ways to have fun. Alongside vaudeville, few creations exemplified this trend more than the so-called dime novel, a genre of cheap literature telling all sorts of exciting tales and stories to everyone from school children to adults. A precursor to the comic book, science pulp fiction, and more, the dime novel was everywhere throughout the Gilded Age. Few subjects were as popular for dime novel readers as tales from the Old or Wild West, and few forms of literature did more to cement the importance of the West in the American popular imagination as this genre. But who wrote these novels? What were the stories they told? How closely did they fit actual events and people? With me to answer these questions and more is Matthew Kearns, award-winning author of Texas Jack, America's first cowboy star. Matthew, welcome. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I really appreciate uh, you, you letting me come on and talk about this. I think that Dime novels are such a fascinating intersection of uh, literature, pop culture, uh, like you said, of kind of the precursor to comic books, um, you know, serialized literature and, and ways that we're going to be taken more uh, seriously in the coming years, but kind of all originated in this dime novel format. So, yeah, I think you've picked a great topic for this one. Pleasure is all mine, and it's genuinely a fascinating topic. So let me ask you the question I ask uh, most of my uh, most of my guests uh, on the podcast. Let us imagine a uh, this was an era in which the profession of history, and not just the profession of great men history, but also social history, uh, was emerging. So let's imagine that a social historian from Europe uh, comes to visit the United States to inquire into the popular culture of the dime novel. At the beginning of this period, around the end of the Civil War, in the middle of this period say around the 1890s, and by the end of this period, uh, at the end of the First World War. What would he find about the dime novel? What would have changed? What would have stayed the same? Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I think, you know, they would have found um, primarily the same thing I think you would have seen later in comic books, which is that over time, uh, as the publishers figured out which genres sold the most, uh, that's what they focus their attentions on. Uh, obviously, in the the early part of uh, of dime novels, of uh, you know the early kind of Beetle Brothers uh, things that they were doing, you were looking at stories that had a huge variety of of genre, from uh, stories about mountain men and kind of in the uh, leather stocking esque stories to um, pirate stories 
detective stories, police stories, all kinds of things. Uh, and over time, you see that kind of uh, become more refined as they figure out what sells the best. And uh, uh, you have the advent of Western stories, which really kind of take off uh, in the 1870s, um, or really 1869 to 1870. They start taking off these Western stories of uh, initially of scouts and their encounters with Indians, but then later of cowboys and you know, what we think of as the Western genre. And so I think uh, over time, what you would see if you were a social historian is you would see this refinement of genres, but you'd also start to see a pushback uh, against what readers viewed as, uh, some readers viewed as an overt violence in these books. Uh, You started to see people who were blaming the dime novels for some of the uh, social problems um, especially, I think this would be interesting from a European perspective, because as late as uh, World War II, uh, or right before World War II, rather, you start there was a, a a movement in Germany to ban American dime novels because they didn't like that they made uh, figures like the American cowboy into folk heroes uh, amongst the people you know of uh, Germany at the time, and the you know these dime novels were huge by the kind of early 20th century into the 1920s, huge throughout Europe. They were, you know, originated in in English, but were, you know, then reprinted in French and Italian, uh, Danish, you know, they they were uh, just a mainstay. Uh, And and it became a huge cultural export. And that's the other kind of aspect of this, I think is so interesting, is the ways in which the external view of America and Americans was shaped by the consumption of dime novels, which weren't, as you know, incredibly historically accurate. Uh, Even when they were talking about historic figures, they tended to be more um, exaggerated and comical and uh, probably flattering as well. So yeah, I think you definitely would have seen a, um, a kind of change over that time. Very interesting. So let's get to the structure of the dime novel itself. For those who are not familiar with this particular form of literature, what exactly was it in terms of structure and appearance? What, who were the kind of people who would write dime novels? Where were they published? And if I was an average American living anywhere in the country, where could I pick one up? Uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, so a dime novel, uh, it got its name because they were generally uh, a 10 cent weekly uh, kind of a, uh, early pulp magazine. Um, you know, they, they, there were five cent versions that were smaller. Generally they tended to be, um, serialized and also kind of, uh, uh, almost like an anthology where a story would start. And then by the time you'd reach the conclusion of that story, you would have also been reading, you know, the middle of another story and the beginning of a third story in the same publication. And that way, you know, you stayed hooked, Um, you know, and if your favorite author didn't have one in this one, there was a chance they'd have one in the next one. Uh, so some of those, uh, early dime novelists, uh, included people like, uh, Ned Buntline is probably the, the most famous example. Um, Ned Buntline's, uh, actual name was, uh, Edward, uh, Carol Zane Judson. Uh, and he, um, basically self-invented himself, uh, reinvented himself as a, military hero slash uh, dime novelist. Uh, at the time, during the, 
the height of the Gilded Age, the uh, late 1860s, early 1870s. He was probably the second most widely read author of the day behind only Mark Twain. And uh, Twain, when he's writing um, Tom Sawyer, has Tom Sawyer reading Ned Buntline's uh, Black Pirate of the Spanish Main uh, to kind of show you how just how popular <laughs> those things were. Um, they could be found pretty much at every, uh, you know, any it, just like now, any place that you'd go to buy um, a magazine, you know, so if you went to a, a general store or you went to a, a, a newsstand in certain cities, uh, you could find these. And they were very heavily advertised um, as well. Uh, you kind of, uh, if you see them now, they're, they're all this kind of uh, yellow tan color, uh, black and white, uh, usually front piece uh, woodcut illustrations that were, uh, you know, very influential in shaping what, what you were going to think of the story. Um, which uh, again, by and large, uh, tended to be stories of, uh, detectives and, uh, pirates early on switching to Westerns later. Uh, but yeah, they were, uh, hugely, uh, uh, popular to the point where they'd be traded and sold amongst people who, you know, oh, I've got issue two, you've got issue one, let's, you know, let's switch out. Um, and they kind of made their way even to places that, uh, you know, where, where, uh, they weren't sold as much, but were just traded. So uh, I've found stories in some of my research on in Frontier, Nebraska, uh, that when uh, I think Ned Buntline arrived there at the end of a California uh, temperance lecture, uh, that people there knew who he was. You know, they had read his stories. Uh, they had been traded amongst uh, the the kind of uh, military brass at the the local fort and amongst the population there at North Platte. So, uh, you know, hugely uh, well spread to the point where it kind of became like what we consider water cooler talk for television shows, you know, that you would ask your friends like, oh, have you seen the, the latest Ned Buntline? And it wasn't just children like we think of a lot of kind of uh, comics and adventure stories. Uh, adults uh, were reading these things. And, and inside the pages of these, beyond just the stories, they'd have advice columns or ask us a question columns. Um, and so people were finding information, especially because, um, let, let me go back to the example I used before, when Ned Buntline would be writing stories about guys like Buffalo Bill and Texas Jack, he would also be including letters that they wrote from uh Western forts where they would talk about their encounters with uh, Sioux warriors or their, uh, you know, Buffalo uh, hunts with uh, aristocrats. And so it was this mixture of, uh, of real life and fictional adventure um, that just uh, became hugely influential in terms of the way that America saw itself and saw its, uh, its heroes. So, People read these dime novels just on a very vast scale. Uh, they buy them, they trade in them, they talk about them. But what was, we all know that uh, nowadays you have uh, websites like TV tropes and there's probably comic book tropes. Every single genre has its tropes and foibles and cliches or at least general structures. Uh, if I were, if you were to describe, I guess, the roughly typical dime novel of the day, what would you generally expect to find in it? And what might you occasionally find in it? What would you not find in it? Yeah, that's, um, it's, it kind of is hard to say 
uh, with any specificity because of the variety that you had. But I can say that uh, in terms of the Westerns, which is, you know, I know that a little bit better than some of the others. Uh, early on, it wasn't as uh, tropey as, as you'd suspect, because um, the, there was no format for a Western other than just following the format of general adventure. Um, so what you would see is, uh, uh, and like in the early Ned Buntline stories, you'd have, uh, usually there's a, uh, a center point of some uh, woman in distress. Uh, she may have been uh, taken by a, a hostile uh, tribe. She may have been taken by a, a gang of uh, bad men, um, which is kind of a catch-all term that was used for any uh, white man who wasn't sufficiently um, brave or uh, chivalrous, let's say. Uh, but a lot of times they would subvert what we think of as the modern tropes because you would, in addition to having, uh, they'd go after these uh, Sioux warriors, you'd have Pawnee that came to their rescue. Uh, so it wasn't that every uh, Native American character was portrayed as a, as a bad guy. In fact, later when uh, you have dime novels written by people like Buffalo Bill, uh, who probably had some help from more established writers like Prentice Ingraham. But you would see things like uh, um, freed slave characters that were shown as being, uh, uh, you know, up to the task of assisting and befriending the, the kind of heroic white characters. So again, it was much less um, uh, tropey uh, than, than I think you would expect Uh with the exception of that it, it does have to fall into the good guys are going to win format. Uh, it's, there's hardly ever a huge surprise. Uh, you know, there's cliffhangers at the end of, uh, of a segment to keep you coming back to next week's, uh, you know, uh, find out what happens, you know, to our heroic characters in the, the next adventure. Um, and, you know, looking back on them, there is a lot of what it now seems like, uh, casual racism that at the time was not considered racist. It just was the pervading attitude, unfortunately. Um, you know, so a lot of that now makes it seem very dated. Uh, but, but in terms of trope, I think that, uh, some of that came later. Um, you see it more in the detective stories, uh, which have tropes that are still being, uh, you know, written out in, uh, in mystery and, uh, detective, uh, books and uh, TV shows these days. Uh, but there was such a wide variety of what a dime novel could be about uh, that it tended to be able to avoid, you know, a little bit of that. That's very interesting. Uh, I actually wanted to follow up on that with how many, how many dime novelists, again, obviously, roughly speaking to the extent that you can based the variety, how many dime novelists ever actually say physically visited the frontier or the West or actually did original research and how many simply copied off of others? Oh yeah, that's, that's a great question. The, the answer is most of them were just writing and not experiencing. Um, I, I think the origin of especially the Western um, dime novel starts with Ned Buntline and Ned Buntline was not a Western uh, man. He was from uh, uh, upstate New York, actually, uh, had been involved with some military stuff, had moved around quite a bit in the East. He lived in Nashville until he was uh, uh, 
They actually tried to hang him in Nashville for having a dalliance with another man's wife and then killing that man when he started shooting at him. And so he leaves Nashville, and but he mostly stays east. He goes out west because, like I said, he went to California on a temperance lecture tour. And as he made his way back, had read stories of, uh, there was a famous um, Harper's Monthly Magazine article about Wild Bill Hickok um, that kind of uh, made Wild Bill a... uh, a celebrity, despite the fact that he was a, you know, regional lawman and and frontier Kansas, um, but people started liked this story so much that uh, Ned Buntline, on his way back from California, thought, "Hey, I ought to look and see if I can find this guy." There's differing stories as to what happened. One of them is that uh, Hickok threatened to shoot him when he approached him in a bar without properly announcing his intentions first. But either way, uh, Ned Buntline ends up in a saloon in North Platte, Nebraska, where he meets Buffalo Bill Cody and Texas Jack Omohundro, neither which are famous at this point. And by the next week, he has begun writing Buffalo Bill stories. So he saw something in the Western, uh, both Western men and the Western setting uh, that he thought would resonate with readers, and it did. But honestly, he really never goes back. And later you see ties into, um, there's a famous, uh, uh, Wyatt Earp um, is supposed to have carried this long-barreled pistol called the Ned Buntline Special because Ned Buntline supposedly sends it to him for uh, inspiring all these Western stories. But the, the fact is that Ned Buntline and Wyatt Earp were never in the same place at the same time. Buntline never went to Dodge City or Tombstone or any of those places. It kind of, uh, you know, the, the the fiction became the reality uh, in the public perception uh, in the same way that we started to think that cowboys were living these action-filled lives, despite the fact that actual cowboy work is one of the most tedious jobs you can do. Uh, it's, it's a lot of work, but it's not a lot of adventure. But uh, I say that to say that, yeah, most of the writers were writing... Uh, based on what had already been successful. This fictionalized but supposed-to-be-true story of Hickok was so enormously popular with uh, Eastern readers that it kind of inspired people like Buntline to make similar stories of uh, Buffalo Bill, who, in Buntline's original story, uh, is friends with Wild Bill Hickok, and it's basically a Wild Bill Hickok adventure just with Buffalo Bill there, too. Uh, And it's mostly complete fiction. Um, you know, so from that, you start to see it builds on itself. Uh, writers realize what's successful with the last one that was a success, and they just kind of, uh, uh, let's say, appropriate uh, both thematically and, and characters, um, you know, in order to make their next book kind of fit the mold. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that most of them hadn't really... Uh, had much Western experience. Now, some of them, like Buntline or to a greater extent, Prentice Ingraham, uh, had lived lives of huge adventure. They, I think Ingraham had been uh, had signed up for the uh, to go fight in Cuba and had been a prisoner until he escaped. Uh, you know, had all kinds of real life adventures that he would incorporate into his stories about other people. But his adventures hadn't been Western. Um, you know, and the same vein of uh, later kind of uh, mass market Western writers who are not really Western either, the same way that B actors from Hollywood were portraying cowboys. And, you know, I mean, John Wayne didn't grow up on a ranch either. So 
uh, I think that that kind of line between uh, reality and uh, and uh, kind of being an imposter was was something that was already uh, a cultural idea in America at the time. I mean, you you have people who went to see uh, P.T. Barnum's exhibits not because they believed in them, but because they wanted to tell what of this is real and what of this is fake. And same with the, with the Western stories. We know that this is an exaggeration, but there's a grain of truth to it. And, and we're interested in the kind of uh, dichotomy, the, the, the split between where the real and the, and the, the story meet. Speaking of which, um, so I was honestly wondering how much of, you mentioned how, Dime novels were popular throughout the entire country, but you could perhaps forgive the people living in the East, maybe not being sure what's real or not. How did people who actually lived on or had spent time on the frontier, or at least prominent figures, uh, feel about uh, stuff that was maybe like 30% real and 70% tall tale or exaggerate? Yeah, you'd think that they would uh, you know, push back against it, but for some reason... It seems to my historical reading, uh, they just fall in line with it. Um, there's a, a famous example where uh, where uh, Buffalo Bill Cody wrote to General Sheridan, who he'd known, uh, to to get Sheridan to say something about the time they had spent together. And Sheridan responds with a, you know, oh, I remember when you led these troops in this year, and we did this thing, and 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 Cody incorporates it into his. Uh, next biography where he tells a story about all that happening, except that it hadn't. Uh, Sheridan had, uh, like a lot of people did and still do, confused Buffalo Bill Cody and Wild Bill Hickok and had sent Buffalo Bill a thing about a thing he had done with Wild Bill. But Buffalo Bill, rather than correct the record, just made it a part of his story. The same way that uh, Cody claims to have written for the Pony Express, uh, when the honest truth is that he probably rode dispatches when he was 11 or 12 years old, uh, three miles from the headquarters of uh, the parent company of the Pony Express to the telegraph office in uh, uh, Leavenworth, Kansas, but never actually rode for the express as far as the historical record states. And yet later in his life, other people who had written for the Pony Express came out of the woodwork to say, oh yeah, I rode with Buffalo Bill and he was the best and this, that, and the other, uh, despite the fact that they must have known it wasn't true because they were there and he wasn't. Uh, it seems like because so many of these people built a celebrity off of the back of the fictionalized uh, version of events that they were telling, that other people essentially saw that they stood to gain by that as well. Um, and so didn't call them, uh, didn't call the bluff, didn't, uh, you know, say, no, that's uh, complete fiction. They just kind of went with it. Um, you, you do see some of that when, when cities like uh, Dodge City are uh, more renowned for their violence. You see some of the locals saying, you know, look, it's not as bad as you're going to read in the dime novels. Uh, but, by and large, it seems like uh, everybody was content to go along with the fiction. And to some extent, I think that's because when we talk about people like Buffalo Bill, Wild Bill, Texas Jack, um, Wyatt Earp, 
that these people did accomplish things and they had proven themselves in a way that was uh, indisputable enough that the exaggeration wasn't seen as uh, imposture. It was just seen as good storytelling. So speaking of good storytelling, you talk about how the dime novels started with uh, a great deal of variety and eventually they zeroed in uh, on the genres that just sold the most and were the most popular. Uh, and and the question of the, the, the frontier in the West was just enduringly popular uh, among people who probably had never set foot in Kansas or ever would set foot uh, in the territories. How, what, could you perhaps explain why was it in an era where so much was changing, uh, cities were growing bigger, you had lots of industry, you had all sorts of new scientific discoveries, and you even had a, a, a wide variety of people who lived in the West. Why was it that this specific genre caught fire, as it were, and basically eclipsed everybody else? I think the reason, the primary reason for that is because of the, um, well, there's there's a couple reasons. Let me start with it. It was the end of the Civil War. Uh, the West became a, a good place to tell a story divorced from the consequence, uh, the, the real on the ground consequence that you would have seen in the North or the South. Um, and it was also a, a, a reconciliation story because you could have a, a story of a uh, you know, let's let's take Buffalo Bill in Texas, Jack, where Buffalo Bill had been a teamster uh, and a private in the in the uh, I think the tenth Kansas Cavalry, and Texas Jack had been a, a Confederate scout and spy under General Jeb Stuart in the Army of Northern Virginia, and so these men had fought on opposite sides of the war, but were friends and allies and partners in the American West. So there was a reconciliation story that I think a lot of Americans wanted to see. In addition to that, um, the stories of, of especially the Westerns are stories of men uh, who are successful, not because of their birth or uh, because of, uh, you know, any particular um, advantage that they would have had uh, from going to a college and learning a vital skill, but because they were brave and because they were, you know, honorable and that that was the kind of secret to success. And when you contrast that against the fact that, you know, in the East, as, as things became more and more industrial, people worried that they were losing something vital about what had made the American man uh, exemplary in their eyes. Uh, and in men like Buffalo Bill or Texas Jack or Wild Bill, you could imagine that that wasn't the case, that you know, as we ventured west, the demands of the um, the area forced a, a person to be uh, a real man, not not working in a factory. Uh, you know, doing because a lot of the industrial work was seen as effeminating, as was the increased education to a certain extent, uh, which is what makes it ironic that the you know, the, the rate of, uh, of Americans that could suddenly read and wanted to read with their free time were choosing to read about people that were so far removed from the uh, context of their own lives. But I think with the Westerns, the other thing that very quickly made them so popular is that, you know, you, you, if you were a young man living in, let's say, New York City in the early 1870s, you know, you could go down to your local, uh, uh, 
you know, newsstand and buy a copy of a, of a story about, uh, let's say it's 1873 and you bought a, the first, uh, edition of, uh, the street and Smith's New York weekly with the story, Texas Jack, white King of the Pawnee. Well, the, the truth of the matter was that if you'd waited a month, you could go down to a local theater and see that man, that comic book like hero that you'd read about last week on stage in front of you acting that out. Uh, you know, so it, it managed to reinforce itself. Um, even when the stage plays that they were in were completely ridiculous and were lambasted by every critic that ever got a hold of them. Uh, they just seemed to resonate with the public for the same reason that the book said that you had a version of the type of man you thought that you could be in a certain situation playing that out in front of you. Uh, and that just became hugely popular. Very well explained. So we have this genre that tells, uh, that basically creates heroes for Americans to believe in after, after the trauma of the Civil War and the disorienting changes of the Gilded Age. Basically an incredible medium to tell stories and perhaps even uh, tell morals to an extent. Um, and I was curious, there's often a debate nowadays uh, regarding popular culture as to how much it should be about telling a good story or making good art or using it uh, for various uh, social or political causes that are relevant. And the Gilded Age is one that was absolutely full of them, not just in the East, uh, but also in the West, the emergence of populism and the fights over gold and silver the question of uh, treatment of Native Americans, which was debated to an extent uh, there and other issues like that. How much did uh, dime novelists, were, were they just like, that? I'm, not, I'm staying out of that, I want to sell as many copies of my book as possible and I don't want to get in trouble? Or were there some authors who said, you know what, I'll bring this up as background or maybe as an even-handed story or maybe uh, in a form of advocacy? I think you see some advocacy. Uh, it's hard to say, looking back at it, how much of it is deliberate and how much of it is just an author putting his personal slant on whatever story. Buntline's a great example because despite the fact that uh, Ned Buntline was a no notorious womanizer, I think he had nine wives and uh, some of them at the same time. Um, despite that, he generally... Uh, paints the female characters in his books in a much better light than a lot of other kind of uh, contemporary authors would. Uh, he seems to suggest, uh, you know, that uh, they should have uh, equal treatment under the law, which uh, isn't always uh, something that, that dime novelists were calling for. Um, with people like uh, Texas Jack and Buffalo Bill, who were portrayed in these books, especially as being these great Indian fighters. Um, you would also see that they had friendships with individual uh, uh, native men and women and, uh, or in the case of Texas Jack with an entire tribe of Pawnee people, which mirrored real, the real life uh, uh, times because he was very close to the Pawnee. He hunted with them in the summers and, uh, you know, spent a lot of time learning their languages. Um, and so you saw some treatment uh, of Native Americans as a great example, where even though they're portrayed as the villain, certain tribes are portrayed as the villains in these stories, they're also portrayed as, you know, people, not just uh, 
Um, uh, there's many cases in which native people are treated like vermin in stories, like they're literally something to be uh, eradicated. Uh, but you do see uh, the occasional uh, attempt to, to humanize and to be more even-handed. Uh, I can't say that that's because Ned Buntline felt like that was his role. I think he just wrote, and as long as it was selling, there was very little consequence to, you know, somebody telling him, hey, you shouldn't have included that or you should have included this. Uh, it was just, as long as it's selling, it doesn't really matter. But by and large, it did tend to be more... Um, more grounds for just make, making money, selling some some books, and uh, and moving on with your life, and less of a, you know, there's a lot of kind of uh, social questions, and I don't think that most of them are answered or even asked uh, in the context of period dime novels. Which brings us to the final question. Um, reading uh, a variety of surveys about dime novels in preparation for this episode, I noticed that almost all of them basically stopped cold in 1920. And that kind of like vaudeville in the Gilded Age, the idea is that they all drop off or die off. Um, but based on my uh, interview with uh, Travis D uh, on vaudeville, he noted, uh, he notes in his book, uh, and I believe in the interview, that many of the people who uh, worked in vaudeville eventually found themselves uh, integrated uh, into the new world of movies and, uh, and later television. I was wondering, to what extent did uh, authors or at least people uh, working uh, in the field of Hollywood and television, how much were they, uh, did they uh, see the dime novel or dime novel ideas as a basis for the later Westerns on TV or in movies, or did they basically uh, kind of neglect them and go to other sources? Um, I think that, that it, you know, you definitely can see a tie between especially televised, serialized Westerns, um, things like, uh, you know, uh, The Rifleman. Um, you definitely see a tie back to dime novels because the stories were told in such a way that, uh, you know, they're episodic. Uh, they're the consequences of, you know, today's adventure aren't necessarily going to be played out tomorrow. You could tune in at any point and, you know, pretty much know exactly where the story was going. So I think the format of television especially uh, meant that it was going to have ties into um, kind of uh, the dime novel aesthetic, uh, as it were. I think that, that the dime novel set the stage, especially for Westerns, um, and, and in certain ways for things like... Uh, like I would say that, you know, if you look at detective uh, dime novels, you can definitely see a tie in to early Batman stories uh, where he's, you know, considered the world's greatest detective and isn't yet a kind of a superhuman uh, that he would become over time uh, an action star. It's more detective stories. Well, Westerns, uh, you know, the format was already there because of those. Uh, but also you had some of the same problems where, you know, you would have these um, kind of uh, Western TV shows that kind of got uh, maligned and blamed for, uh, you know, certain kinds of behavior. Uh, but that had been going on in, in dime novels uh, before that. There's a story from uh, 1874 where a, a child was uh, – abducted in Boston, uh, a young girl uh, named uh, 
Katie Curran. I think she's about 10 years old at the time and she was abducted and, uh, then, and no, no one could figure out what had happened. And then a, another child was abducted. Um, and, and then they found these, uh, the bodies of these children in uh, uh, the uh, Dorchester Bay around Boston. Well, eventually they catch this, uh, this young man for uh, committing these crimes. And the, the, you know, people are horrified. Uh, this is some people consider this one of the first serial killers in the United States. Um, but they blame it on his consumption of, of dime novels. Uh, uh, you know, that he's been reading these, uh, violent Western books. And because of that, now he's, uh, literally, uh, turned into the kind of, uh, you know, violent protagonist that we've seen in these books. So I think that you, you have both the, the format of dime novel, but also the inherent kind of, uh, you know, blame uh, that, that reading about violence is going to turn these children violent. And then later seeing violence on television. Uh, and so you have, uh, you know, a, a very big push to keep, um, you know, you can have somebody shoot somebody, but it's going to be off screen or you're not going to actually see any blood. Uh, you know, that was kind of a direct result of, uh, of that, um, which gets a little far from the, the question, but uh, yeah, I, uh, I think that that's, that's basically that. Well, you've given us a great uh, summary of a fascinating uh, genre, and it's been a pleasure. I'd like to once again remind my listeners that you can listen to this podcast on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and YouTube, and you can support the podcast on Patreon. Matthew Kearns, thank you very much for coming on, and see you next time at Avi's Conversational Corner.